Good morning. How are you guys doing? Why don't you stand up and come all the way on up front? There's all this room up here, and you're being trained to be good Lutherans and sit as far back as you can, but we're going to try to retrain you from an early age. Come on, you can sit over here on the sides. Look at all this great room over here. Good to see you guys today. Today we are going to talk about rejection. Do you guys know what rejection is? Rejection is when someone gives you something, but you say, take it back, I don't want it. I'm rejecting it. It's kind of a way to think of rejection. We, we just celebrated Christmas not too long ago. Can you guys imagine if there was a present, and you opened the gift, and it was exactly what you wanted, but instead of celebrating and saying thank you so much to whoever gave it to you, you took the box and you gave it back to them and you said, no thanks, I would rather pay for it myself. Does that make sense? That sounds kind of crazy, right? That would be rejecting. Rejecting a gift. Somebody gives it to you and you say, no thanks, I'm going to go buy it myself. You take the gift back. I reject your gift. That makes no sense to us. We don't think that way about Christmas presents, right? We probably wouldn't act that way. But when it comes to God's word, that's exactly what people do. God gives a gift through his word and people say, no thanks, I'd rather do it myself. And it's not just those people out there. It's these people in here. It's you, it's me, it's everyone. This is the normal reaction to God's word. We, we might not like to think that. We might like to think that the normal reaction to God's word is accepting God's word. But actually, the normal reaction to God's word is rejecting God's word. Today we're going to focus in on that section of God's word that we just listened to where Jesus himself was rejected in his hometown. And we're going to come to grips with this sad reality that we don't have the ability to accept God's word, that we are inclined to reject it too. But as we see those truths, we're going to better understand Jesus, our Savior, and just how much he loves you and just how much he loves me. Let's pray and ask God to help us focus on his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great gift of your Son, Jesus. Um, as we wrestle with this difficult reality of rejection today, we ask that you would help us to come to grips with what we're actually like, how sinful we really are, and lead us to better appreciate the gift that you have given to us through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. This will serve as the basis for our time in God's word this morning. This reading comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. Jesus went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. 
all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the hill or on which the town was built, in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I usually try to refrain from sports illustrations in my sermons, but I'm going to use one this morning and know it will not be about the Packers. There's a legend about Michael Jordan when he was in high school in the late 70s. And usually when the story's told, it, it goes something like this. Michael Jordan was cut from his freshman basketball team. It's not entirely accurate. What actually happened was when Michael Jordan was a 5'10 sophomore, he tried out for the varsity team. He didn't make it. Now, a lot of sophomores don't make the varsity team. That's nothing crazy. He was 5'10", and the varsity coach came to him and said, Michael, you're not good enough. And it was those words, you're not good enough, that he would look back on all the time. When he reached the height of his career and he'd be asked about how he got where he got, he always told that story multiple times. He talked about the varsity coach who looked him in the eye and said, Michael, you're not good enough. Those words combined with his natural God-given talent sent him on this whirlwind mission where he worked harder than anyone else and became one of the greatest, if not the greatest players to ever play the game. When one human being says to another human being, you're not good enough. I suppose that Michael Jordan type response is one possibility. The words, you're not good enough, might spur on hard work, efforts to prove the other wrong. But I think for most of us, that's probably not the most likely response. I think for, for most of us, more likely is that you look inside and you think about what was said and you say, they're right. I'm not good enough. What this critical mind saw is reality. That's true for me. I'm, I'm not good enough. And of course, that could send a person down all sorts of negative trails you can fall into despair, maybe even depression. 
God's word does this to us. God's word comes to you, it comes to me, and it clearly says, you are not good enough. And some people respond like Michael Jordan, don't they? They study God's word like crazy. They want to learn everything that God expects of them. They want to know God's word better than everybody else, and then they're going to work the plan. They're going to do what God expects. They're going to be better Christians, and either they're going to prove God wrong or prove that it's possible to be what God wants. But I think more likely is the other type of response. It's the one that looks inside and says, God's right. I am exactly what he says I am. I am not good enough. And the devil wants you and me to stay right there, to wallow in despair, to say, woe is me, there is no hope for someone like me, no matter what God says. Sound like very different responses, don't they? They sound incredibly different. The Michael Jordans of the world and the people who are told they're not good enough and crawl into a corner but they're actually two sides of the exact same coin. They're two sides of the same self-focused, works-righteous coin that relies completely on self and rejects everything outside of self. Our text began with Jesus in his hometown, in Nazareth, and we're told it was his custom to do what you're doing today, right? To go to church. And so he goes to church, And when he's at the synagogue, he stands up to read, and the attendant hands him the scroll of Isaiah. And no small thing to note how Jesus finds the place where it is written. He knew this scroll well. He knew exactly where he was turning to. He opens the scroll towards the end, where he finds these words that you heard in the Old Testament lesson, and he quotes them, right? He talks about freeing captives, He talks about good news for the poor, sight for the blind, release from oppression for the oppressed. And at first, the reaction's positive, isn't it? People are blown away by his gracious words. But it's that change that maybe is a little hard to to come to grips with at first. Where they go from marveling at his gracious words to wanting to throw him off a cliff. What's, What's going on there? When the prophet Isaiah wrote these words, when they were being pondered by God's people for the first time, you're talking about the Babylonian captivity. God's people were in, in already captives in Babylon, and, and this was a promise. Good news for the poor, freedom for the captives, sight for the blind, release from oppression for those who are oppressed. But as God's people, who were captives in Babylon, heard those promises for the first time, it was one thing to hear God speaking them, it was another thing to actually believe that they would be true. These people, captives a thousand miles from home, were impoverished. And it'd be very easy for them, like anyone who's very, very poor, to just think, I'm always going to be this way. It's one thing for the prophet to come and say, well, you're not going to be poor anymore. I have good news for you. But it's another thing for that poor person to believe this actually means I'm no longer going to be poor. And the captive picture, very similar. It's hard for us to to relate to, but if you could picture the cold, dark, stone dungeon 
and chains on the, the shackles on the wrists and on the ankles, chained to the wall. You can't even lay down. The chains are so tight. You're just sitting there. You're captive. If someone came to you through that locked gate and said, I'm proclaiming freedom for you, captive. I'm going to get you out of here. Well, it's one thing to believe that you're actually going to get out of there. And it's another thing to just sit there and say, I'm never going to get out of these chains. And the people who were in Babylon, they were there because they were spiritually blind. Because they rejected the word of God. They ended up there as punishment for what they had done, for rejecting all God's promises, rejecting God himself. And it's one thing when you're blind, when there's no light coming in your eyes, for someone to say, I'm going to give you sight. You will see again. But it's another thing for that blind person to actually believe that they will see. And same thing with the oppressed. If you are truly oppressed, it is one thing for someone to come and say, no more oppression for you. It's another to believe that that will actually happen. The temptation for the people at Babylon was to just stay in Babylon. To just believe that none of these things were ever going to happen for them. And so I'm just going to deal with my reality and I'm going to try to gather up any scraps of pleasure that I can with what remains of my miserable existence here. Now, as is often the case with this portion of Isaiah's prophecy towards the end of his book, these prophetic words speak to something that's relatively near. For the Israelites, it was freedom from Babylon. A couple decades, right? But it speaks beyond that as well. To a spiritual parallel. There are spiritual parallels to all of these truths that Jesus came and preached. And so there he is in Nazareth, preaching to the people who knew him well, and he says things that sound really good. Good news for the poor, freedom for the captive, sight for the blind, no more oppression for the oppressed. And they marvel at these gracious words. What good news? But then they look at him again. And what do they see? Wait a minute, we know this guy. This is, this is Joseph's son, the carpenter's kid. How is he going to do all that? Nah, there's no way. There's no way he's going to do this. He couldn't possibly do all that. And that's when Jesus hits him where it hurts. He brings up those examples of Elijah and Elisha. Now, maybe for you, those are familiar stories that you, that you learned long ago and, and you could recall and tell them yourself, but maybe for you, not so much. During the time of Elijah, Jesus referenced a three-and-a-half-year famine. That's a big deal, right? We haven't even been dealing with COVID for two years yet. A three-and-a-half-year, life-impacting, life-altering famine. There were a lot of hungry people in Israel. There were a lot of starving widows who needed help. And Jesus' point is, where did God send the prophet Elijah again? Oh yeah, not to the widows in Israel, to a foreigner in a place called Zarephath. Why? Jesus wants the people in Nazareth to, to ask, them, ask themselves, why did God do that? Oh yeah, that's right, because all the widows in Israel had already rejected his word. And so God sends the prophet to someone else. 
And then after Elijah was the prophet Elisha. And there were a lot of people who had leprosy, that awful skin disease in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. But who did God send to Elisha to be healed again? Oh yeah, that's right. It was a foreigner, a man named Naaman. Because all the lepers in Israel had already rejected the word of God. There's a warning here, a very clear warning for us. You reject the word of God enough, and God might just send the messengers who bring you his word to someone else, somewhere else, who will listen. It's a hard thing for us to come to grips with, because as I mentioned at the beginning of the service, our focus for today is this challenging reality that rejection of God's word is the rule, not the exception. Rejection of God's word is the norm, even in your hearts, even in mine. You might hear God come and say to you, you're not good enough, and do the Michael Jordan response, and completely ignore the the words of Jesus because you don't need his help. Or you might hear God tell you you're not good enough and do the despair route. I'm too poor. I have nothing to offer God, and there is no hope for me or the one that tends to resonate with a lot of people, I think, the guilt of past sins that you just can't get rid of. You think about it all the time. It's like you're chained to a wall, and you just think about things you did when you were a kid, things you did when you were a teen, maybe something you did last week or even yesterday. And the guilt of those sins just has you chained, and you feel like there is nothing that anyone can do to get these chains off. I'm never going to live this down It's always going to be there with me. Maybe you're the one who keeps making bad decisions and your life is making you pay for it. And it's like, I can't see. I I constantly am making the wrong choice and it happens over and over and over again. I'm like a blind person stumbling around in the dark. I will never see. Maybe for you, it's oppression by your sin. It's oppression by death tragic loss of a loved one. Someone taken from you too soon. And you're so oppressed by these things. You're convinced it's never going to go away. doesn't matter what God says. It's two different ways to reject God, but they're both rejection. They both reject what Jesus says, just like the people in Nazareth. And this is why it's important for us to really focus on what Jesus actually said to the people in Nazareth. When he says, I have come to proclaim good news to the poor, he is talking about people like us. People who have nothing to offer God are even the people who reject God, who prove that we have nothing to offer him. Jesus is for us, people who reject him. People who find themselves chained to the guilt of sin committed decades ago and who have constantly been believing the lie that nothing can remove those shackles, Jesus has come to remove those shackles. To say, it's for you, even you, people who reject me, that I've come to free. Same thing with those of us who are spiritually blind. All of us are by nature. Jesus has come to give us sight. 
Yes, even people who reject him. I don't know if you got the point from the children's devotion, but the big point was that this is illogical. This response that we tend to have, it makes no sense that Jesus would come and proclaim all this good news, say the king is here, I have fulfilled all this. Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It makes no sense to say this is great news and then reject it. I love this wonderful gift, but no, I want to earn it myself. makes no sense. And yet that is the natural reaction. This is why your kids reject the word of God. This is why your grandkids reject the word of God. This is why your neighbors reject the word of God. This is why your cousin rejected the word of God. This is why all the people that you care about the most, you share God's word with them and they don't seem to care at all. Well, this is why. And this is why you've rejected the word of God and this is why I've rejected the word of God. It's because it is the norm. It is the rule. Illogical though it is, it makes absolutely no sense. Sin never does. Sin never makes sense. This is what we do. And yet look at Jesus again. He has come for people like us. He came to this world to rescue people who reject him. People who spit in his face when presented with his gift. People who want nothing to do with him. Jesus has come to save people like us. When he says, I have good news for the poor. Release for the captives. Sight for the blind. And no more oppression for the oppressed. He means what he says. And this good news is for you and it is for me. And this means that when we leave here today, and we go back out into that world and have more opportunities to interact with the people that you and I know and love who have rejected God's word, we get to go to them and say, this good news is for you too. My dear child, who has wandered from the one true God, Jesus is for you. Even someone like you who has time and time again rejected him, like I so often have, Jesus is for you. We get to go tell those people who have already rejected God, maybe even to our face, maybe even harshly, we get to go back to them and say, but listen again. Listen again to what Jesus says. Listen to the good news that Jesus is even for people like you and me. When Jesus says today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, he he means it. The kingdom of God has come. This is really good news. Celebrate, rejoice in it. This good news is for you, it is for me, and it is for those you love. Leave here today rejoicing in who Jesus is and what he has done. Amen.